0: I recollect the first memory I had of a priest growing up in a Roman Catholic background. The difference between the priest and the pastor in the Lutheran tradition is very, very slim. There are some theological differences, of course, but there is enough of an overlap of the tradition that the transition from a Roman Catholic uh, diocesan background to an ELCA parish was not very strong at all. But the first icon of the priest growing up was that of our good friend, Father Neil. Father Neil was the priest who baptized me. He was the earliest person I can remember wearing a cassock and Roman collar. And as I was a child watching my grandfather and his buddies watching the Giants game here, American football, I can remember him in his Roman collar with a beer in his hand, laughing and smiling, patting me on the back, whooping at the screen. Privately hearing the confession of my grandfather in the room next door, blessing rosary beads, my first pair that I received, medals of the communion of saints. In an ELCA context, after I discerned a vocation within a Lutheran home, I discovered that my new home pastor, who was willing to help mentor me through my discernment towards Word and Sacrament ministry, I learned from him the deep, delicate balance of authority that one walks between the role of pastor and the parish council, the deacons who have a level of authority within the parish, uh, those who are serving to support potlucks And the way he walked among the people, heard their concerns, the way he walked among us and heard our concerns. The way in which he would gently say no, or have to affirm a difference in a direction or path. This pastoral influence, along with that of the priests I grew up with, was an extraordinary modeling of a kind of authority that came from a place of total confidence and God's call over their lives. They were not filled with a false paternal kind of love as discussed in class, which patronizingly controls others in the name of love. No, I saw these holy men of God. And as for some close colleagues, holy women of God involved directly in ministry in a way that indicated to me A very sincere concern for love of neighbor personally, directly, even as a shepherd stays through the night carrying those who are around them, the the sheep, even under the threat of the wolves. Watching the images in class of the shepherds, having them describe to me their their relative poverty compared to the Western world, their daily struggles and the reality of women, echoing the struggles that Mary must have faced in the first century as an unwed pregnant mother in ancient Israel, were all things which deeply were moving to me and brought alive the reality of the Bible. The key is the word authority has the root word author, and the true and only author is God. And all authority that we are given is delegated to us. And God becoming a human being washes his disciples' feet in the form of a servant, almost literally in the form of a slave from Philippians chapter 2. And so this humility, but a confidence in one's call, this balance of walking with a secure sense of one's calling, while at the same time recognizing needs for listening and opportunities for growth and opportunities for development, These are all aspects that I've deeply learned, and I'm learning along this pastoral journey. I would like to also add that there was and remains in my life a deep and abiding love for the personal encounter between the pastor offering the sacrament and the congregant receiving the bread of life, the Eucharist. I am passionately attached to Eucharistic theology in an intimate way. And when I am on the altar as an assistant minister, um, under the direction of my pastor during my field work, learning the names of the congregants, getting to know them personally, having lunch with them, having meals with them, opening up, hearing their struggles, being able to, to listen to where their hearts are at, knowing their names by by voice when I offer them the host, the sacrament. I could say, For example, I'm using alternative names here to protect the anonymity of those involved. Susan, the body of Christ, broken for you. Susan, this is the blood of Christ shed for you. Actually naming the name makes all the difference in the entire world. Luther once said this, that when Jesus says, this is the cup of the new covenant, poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. The you that he meant there was us personally, directly, and intimately. So, you could almost fill in your name. You know, I, I John, you know, this is the body of Christ broken for you, John, for the forgiveness of your sins. The fact that we could insert ourselves directly into a personal relationship with Christ. In this case, yes mediated through the pastor as an icon of love. Now, there are messier times where that often becomes quite challenging. I have a good friend. um, He is a chaplain for an Episcopal and Roman Catholic diocese in California. He brings the sacrament uh, for both traditions, uh, often uh, largely with Roman Catholicism, but he does have friends in the Episcopal Church who have permission to receive. And what's unique about this friend of mine is he will go often into a hospital room and often there is anger or contempt or fury because this individual represents God to them and their anger at God and often gets deflected at them. And in authority, he often has to gently but firmly tell them to either stop or to hopefully redirect them uh, until a more appropriate time when they are willing to receive the sacrament or enter into dialogue or counseling. Um, I don't know the individual cases as closely, but this was a conversation I had with my friend at uh, a recent family funeral. As we discussed before, a tabernacle in a church in Pennsylvania, The, the, the fact that we don't know what we're always walking into and therefore the need for this pastoral counseling spirit that we are deeply discerning in this particular course. One of the works I had to read for this review was by Kerry Dowring in her article, Practice in Pastoral Care, a Postmodern Approach. She presented theologies of suffering and distinguished between a general natural evil, like an earthquake or a hurricane that causes disaster, and then moral evil, often associated in her theology with human intent or human agency, a free will to choose to do maliciously evil things or to succumb to life-restricting behavior, as she puts it, uh, arising from our own tendency to miss the mark. The original word sin means in its initial Greek understanding to literally miss the goal or miss the mark. So, there is a sense in which human agency and the abuse, and particularly the malicious abuse of human agency, does lead to the human being standing before what Dowring describes as the seeming inscrutability of evil, the seeming void of impossible darkness. And while that is a very real, real experience... Uh, narratives, psychologically, according to Dowring, have to be developed in order to wrestle with these questions. And she provides five categories or narratives which try to provide meaning. Now, obviously, as a Bible believing Christian, I believe that many of the uh, categories that she gives, particularly the two that I will point out, of redemptive suffering and a theology of lamentation and of protest, are themselves actually imminent examples of divine revelation, and that divine revelation actually gives a holistic narrative. But she is absolutely correct in my mind in presenting these categories uh, for the wider pastoral care world, well outside the Christian tradition, as having universal meaning and power, as these are sown into our very human nature and into the fabric of reality itself. Now, one of the elements I found passionately interesting about redemptive suffering is that for me, this is the fundamental key. Now, obviously, when someone is sitting through a horrible tragedy, the loss of a child, the loss of a spouse, a chronic illness, illness that could actually take their life, or any kind of mental anguish that could be severe and palpable, or emotional distresses, simply pointing to a crucifix and saying, well, Jesus paid it all and therefore have a nice day is not going to be sufficient. This is where our pastoral discussion of presence is highly helpful. Of course, we need to accompany, we need to listen to those who are encountering encountering the suffering. And of course, trying to provide uh, meaning to their suffering in light of the biblical, I would say, redemptive worldview, needs to arrive with the understanding that that individual is going to have the second category, which was given, theologies of lamentation and of protest. There was an example of a TV play that was broadcast live called God on Trial, where Jewish survivors of Auschwitz end up putting God on trial for the horrible tragedies that occur. And this reminds me deeply of the book of Job and the lamentations that Job has. What I mean to say is we need to realize as pastors that when we arrive at a point of crisis with an individual where they're going through these things, there will be anger. There can be deep frustration towards God. There can be despair in the goodness of God. There can be all natural, easily understandable, retorts back to the seeming inscrutability of this evil. And as a result, we need to first listen and first accompany in that kind of leadership, to lead first by listening. Uh, And then, ultimately, on a very practical level, try to apply our skills to then point to the fact that God, who has become human in Jesus, And was on the cross and said, Eloi, Eloi, Labusakadani, my God, my God, why hast thou abandoned me? That that God, who is the incarnate Lord of every living creature, understands those frustrations, understands those anxieties, understands those pains. Now, obviously, a little bit of Christology here, Jesus is true God and true man, and being truly human, he is, in, always like us except for sin. So I am not suggesting that the incarnate logos had uh, the same exact kind of frustration on that cross. Uh, and I'm not suggesting uh, an authentic uh, mapping up of our own psychological and spiritual and emotional difficulties onto God the Son. But what I am suggesting is that our God does understand what it is to feel pain. Our God understands what it is to be abandoned by his disciples, his friends. And our God has undergone that suffering and therefore the incarnation, um, when explained after time, emphasis on time, after time has been given to to vent and to express on the part of the, the wounded individual, after they have had time to listen to our our gentle and accompanying leadership, then hopefully we can point to Jesus crucified, and in doing so, reveal the fact that nothing that we experience is in vain, even if it feels that way. Uh, I speak from partially my experience here having lost my eyesight um, at five and a half years old to a brain tumor that was undiagnosed, and then finding out over 10 years later that my diagnosis was wrong and that there might be an aneurysm, which there wasn't, thanks be to God, but that this tumor was a, a bit of a problem and they had to go in and take care of it surgically. And, you know, the deep anguish of of going through these traumatic experiences, I can't say in a nutshell, why did that suffering happen? Or how did that, you know, how could God in his loving kindness permit all these these deep turmoils in my life. These are incredible sufferings and crosses, which I would never wish on any other living creature. But what I do know is that my experience of loss and my personal experience of suffering, um, although it is certainly in some sense unique to my narrative, which is different from all other people who have encountered loss, in some sense, there's a universal participation I have in the suffering of Christ, and Christ's suffering with me. And therefore, as I know that God is not alien to my suffering, but is actually uh, intimately participated in it in Gethsemane and on the cross, therefore there is a sense of cosmic hope. And therefore, I fit into that uh, theology of redemptive suffering that we just described from Daring's work. Now, does that take away Theologies of lamentation and of protest in my life. Certainly not. There are times where I, I will grumble. There are times where there are frustrating periods of, of how you know these these limitations which which I'll walk in, which are only human and normative for anyone living in, uh, to quote dowering, a life restrictive state. But what it does illustrate powerfully and palpably is that for the Christian, redemptive suffering is one of the greatest gifts imaginable to understanding the why when we find ourselves utterly incapable of providing answers. I personally think that it would be highly pastorally inappropriate and probably wrong to go up to someone suffering from cancer or let's say someone like me who's just lost their eyesight or anyone else and simply to give a theological explanation like a treatise. We need to accompany their theology of lamentation, their theology of protest. We need to accompany them, in some sense like Job, putting God on trial. We need to accompany them in that messy process. But in the end, at the very end, when their heart is open, if it is open, and we need to discern when, to somehow, in some way, gesture to the crucified one. Gesture, hopefully, by our presence The theology that says, this is my body given up for you. This is the chalice of my blood shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me so that we become fellow Eucharistic hosts, not giving merely lip service, but through our our presence, hopefully, showing a kind of leadership from the front lines in the trenches. I hope that is palpably helpful, and I hope that illustrates the reality of what we are discussing.